Hey there, this is Mark Scrubro, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked toward the middle, well, a little past the middle, of Canto 8 of Purgatorio and right into the long-promised misogynistic passage. Well, is that a great sell for a podcast or what? Hey, come with me through some misogyny. Ugh. Sorry about that. Um, let's talk about the passage for a minute before I read it to you in my English translation, which you can find on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. If you remember, we are in a declivity, it's not very deep, of negligent rulers, rulers who paid more attention to their political life than their souls. And Dante has come upon a perhaps friend, Judge Nino, who Dante may have known from Florence, certainly was on Dante's political team through the Italian strife. Now this figure is going to continue on having been knocked off his feet, that is Nino's feet, when he found out that Dante was indeed alive and in the flesh, which he didn't notice because the day is darkening so much. And so we darken in this passage that follows. Here we are at line 64 through 84 of Canto 8 of Purgatorio. One of them turned to Virgil, and the other turned towards someone seated above, saying, Get up, Corrado, come and see what God wills through his grace. Then that one turned to me and said, Because of the particular gratitude you owe the one who obscures his originary because in such a way that no one can afford it, when you were far away from these expansive waters, tell my Giovanna to call out prayers for me in a spot where the innocents have their prayers answered. I don't believe her mother loves me anymore because she stopped wearing the white bands on her head. But in her misery, she'll long for them again because of her. It's easy to understand just how long love's fire can endure in a woman if the eyes and the sense of touch don't often rekindle it. The viper on the banner of the Milanese encampments won't make her tomb look as beautiful as the rooster of Galura would have. As he settled this, his face was embossed with a look that showed the proper intensity that the fire of indignation can burn in a heart. A little bit of rough translation there on my part. The Florentine's a little bit difficult, and so I'm sure you heard some stumbling in that, some weird, awkward wordings. I want to talk a little bit about that. I kind of just want to talk about the passage itself and work our way through it. Who are these figures? Who's Giovanna? And who is Nino's wife, who now doesn't, eh, well, doesn't seem to be in love with him anymore, and who he is so enraged at? How does it end on this kind of moderating note at the end? Well, which reminds us of that moment when the angels dropped down and it was so dramatic. And then Sordelo kind of said, oh, well, hey, let's just go down below and talk to these rulers. It has that same kind of tamping down effect, that same kind of, what do I want to say, decrescendo effect inside the passage itself. And then finally, what I'm going to spend most of my time talking about is why the misogyny in this passage bothers me so much and perhaps bothers you too. The passage starts, one of them turned to Virgil and the other turned towards someone seated above. So we assume the one who turns to Virgil is Sordelo and be 
going to make this assumption based on what happens later in the passage. So Sordalo, who is constantly linked to Virgil, and then the other, that would be Judge Nino, turned towards someone seated above. This is why we think it's this one's got to be Nino, because he knows who's here, and says, get up, Corrado. I'm going to just blow past that and not talk about Corrado. He's going to come back into this canto, and we'll talk about him more fully when he recurs. So he says to somebody up the hill, get up, Corrado, and come and see what God wills through his grace. Then that one, we're still talking about Judge Nino, turned to me, that is Dante, and said, and this is what I want to focus on, because of the particular gratitude you owe the one who obscures his originary because in such a way that no one can afford it, and then I'm going to break right there, which is in the middle of a sentence, because I want to talk about that use of the word because. It's so great. It has such loose, beautiful, poetic feel to it. So because of the particular gratitude, you, Dante, owe a particular gratitude toward the one, that's God, who obscures his primary or originary or his first because. And here Dante is using a word not as it's supposed to be used, not as a conjunction, but as a noun. This gives us great insight into Dante, who is becoming more adept at language, and the neologisms, the new words, are going to start to flow thick and fast in the poem. Words Dante makes up just because he needs a word for something that he doesn't have in his language. Or like this, he's going to take words and use them in the wrong grammatical sense. God hides his originary because. It's so interesting, right? Not his primal or his first or his originary cause, or not his first movement, but his originary because, which says to us that we can't finally know what God is up to, or at least that is what Judge Nino is leading us to say. We don't actually know why God would let anybody walk through the afterlife like this. And in fact, that because is obscured in such a way that no one can afford it, bringing us back to the imagery of water, back to this idea that the because is so far removed from us that there's no way to boat across it, there's no way to walk across it, there's no way to swim across it. But again, the water imagery is what's crucial here. It's tying up all that imagery from the exodus, from the original angel bringing the souls across the vast expanse of waters to Mount Purgatory. That's all getting wrapped up into Canto 8. Now for the parts in which we have to identify the players. So I'm having stopped in mid-sentence, the because is hidden in such a way that no one can afford it. Judge Nino then goes on. When you are far away from these expansive waters, see waters for it, it's still playing with the concept of water in the passage. Tell my Giovanna to call out prayers for me in a spot where the innocents have their prayers answered. Giovanna is Nino's daughter. She was born in 1291, common era thereabouts. If this journey is taking place in the year 1300, she would, let's say we don't really care about months of the year and don't know about them, then let's say she's probably 
eight, maybe nine at this point of the journey. So she herself is an innocent. So what he's saying is get my innocent daughter to pray for me because that innocence is going to do more than, oh, here we go, the polluted prayers of my fallen wife, which we're going to get to in just a minute. Just to repeat what we said incessantly, those on the slopes of purgatory seem particularly prone to looking back. So these bottom pieces of purgatory of the mountain seem to, I don't know what, permit, seem to give voice to these souls and their backward looks, Manfred to Constance and others, this looking back toward the land of the living. And here we have Nino turning back to his daughter and then to the problems of his wife, which we're now going to get to. I don't believe, he says, her mother, that's Beatrice, not Dante's Beatrice, another Beatrice. This is the daughter of Obizo II d'Este, and we have already seen Obizo II d'Este. He was in the River of Blood among the violent in Inferno 12, line 111. Beatrice's father is already damned, and that's who Nino is talking about here. I don't believe her mother loves me anymore because she stopped wearing the white bands on her head. In Dante's day, the traditional garb of mourning, particularly for women, was all black, black dresses, black uh, shawls, black drapings, all black except for white bands on the head. And the person, it depends on uh, exactly the tradition you're in and actually the locale you're in, but the person could wear one white band around the head. They could wear actually a white band in the head hair, not just on the forehead, but in the hair, or they could wear multiple white bands. But the idea here is she's taken off her clothes of mourning. Why? Well, because she's married again. That's what it says in the passage. She doesn't love me anymore, but in her misery, she'll long for those mourning bands again. Not for me again. She'll get to a place where she wishes mourning were her only problem. Because of her, and here's where it gets really nasty. It's easy to understand just how long love's fire can endure in a woman if the eyes and the sense of touch don't often rekindle it. Ugh. Oh, dude, really? So, in other words, women are prone to slips and falls unless men take care of them. You know, if you're not touching and kissing your wife and looking at her, then she's just going to wander off. Oh, man. The viper, he goes on, on the banner of the Milanese encampments. Now, what does he mean by this? Okay, the Milanese banner, military banner, was a blue viper swallowing a red Muslim. So she has moved from his family to another family. In fact, after the death of Nino, Beatrice married Visconti of Milan in June of 1300. What he's basically saying is, my wife isn't still mourning me. She's gone on and married someone else. Isn't that her right? But somehow this has a little coding of infidelity about it, as if she's supposed to be true to him. There's a little problem here, and you probably heard it already, but maybe not, and I just want to point it out to you. So this Beatrice marries in June of 1300. We know that this journey is taking place in March 
or maybe April, but I'll say March of 1300. So how is it that she seems to already be married in this passage? A lot of scholars really work at this and they say, well, see, Beatrice took off her widow's weeds before she got married. And that's the problem here. She's forgotten her first husband and she's on her way to being married. But it certainly looks on a quick reading of the passage as if she's supposed to already be married, that her indiscretion, her infidelity, can you be infidelist to the dead? Okay, we'll do it. Her infidelity has extended now forward, but then that means the dating is all off. You have a couple uh, ways you can look at this. You can say that Dante didn't actually know the real date of the marriages. I mean, it is off by just a couple months. And so Dante, given the times and given the lack of record keeping and given the distances of being in exile, doesn't know the actual dates of the marriage. And that's possible. You can also say that Dante forgets when this journey is happening. And so the, the literary term is he nods, meaning he kind of nods off his sleep, kind of forgetting his own poem. This is really only a problem if you want comedy to be inerrant. If you want comedy to be without errors, the way scholars, biblical scholars, have approached the Bible, or Torah scholars have approached the Torah, or Islamic scholars have approached the Quran, if you want comedy to be inerrant, then you have to deal with this. I don't need comedy to be inerrant, so I can say, eh, Dante got the dates wrong. I mean, these things happen in giant works. They slip a little bit and you forget a little bit. You know, it it seems part and parcel of writing a giant work, particularly in a day before word processors and before you could do word searches and quick Google searches to figure out if you're right about something. It seems kind of normal. And again, I don't need comedy to be perfect. Then why am I so upset about the misogyny? Hmm, let's get to that. But let's pass on and just make sure that we understand what's going on here. At the end of the passage, Nino says, you know, the viper of the Milanese won't look as good as the rooster of Galura would have on her tomb. Thereby wishing she were dead. Now, that's his family, the Galura precincts of Sardinia. So, in other words, if she'd stayed true to me, she'd still have those Sardinian emblems on her tomb. Oh, man, dude, don't wish your ex-wife dead because she went on with her life. What's wrong with you? And in fact, her life wasn't great. So she marries this uh, Visconti of Milan in June of 1300. And two years later, they were thrown, the whole Visconti family were thrown, out of Milan. And she ended up living in poverty for many years in real life. Does Dante know that? I don't know. But I can say that Beatrice's life wasn't great once she hooked up with this Visconti of Milan. For a moment, it was good. Big, major power center with big, major, powerful family. But given the vicissitudes of Italian politics in the 1300s. She's not going to last long there, and they don't last long there. And pretty soon they're on the run and in poverty, much like Dante himself. It seems that Nino is certainly concerned about what adorns her tomb, which means he's thinking about her death, which means he's really angry at her. The passage finishes off with, as Nino settled this, his face was embarrassed. 
embossed or stamped with a look that showed the proper intensity that the fire of indignation can burn in a heart. What I really want to focus on here is the moderation, the proper intensity. So he has rage toward Beatrice, his wife. He wants his daughter, Giovanna, to pray for him. And yet at the same time, we are kind of being told that this rage is moderated. You heard me express it as pretty dramatic, complete with his disgusting take on women and their, what, their their instability. Their inability to hold love for a man unless a man keeps it going for them. That and also wishing her death. That all seems pretty, uh, what do I want to say, upfront and loud. And yet it moderates here. It pulls back. Is Dante pulling back on the misogyny? No, I don't think so, because Dante doesn't know enough about modern political gender statements to pull back on the misogyny. Is Dante pulling back on the rhetoric of the passage? Maybe. And I pointed this out up front, but Dante does this with the angels who descend, and then he pulls back with Sordello's kind of blase, whoa, let's go down and chat with these guys. And here again, we kind of ramp up to a bit of drama, and we pull back at the end. This may be the overall emotional tenor of Canto Eight of Purgatorio, to ramp up and tamp down, because the goal is to reach a state of peace and harmony in purgatory, and we may be seeing right before the gates of purgatory, which we keep talking about, which lie right ahead of us in Canto Nine. right before the gates of purgatory, there may be this way we're kind of being taught to pull it back. You're in high gear, pull it back. Just keep pulling it back to a more steady, even pace. Okay, let's turn to the problem of misogyny and why it bothers me so much and why it may indeed bother you so much. Here's where I want to start, with my own hypocrisy. (laughs) In an earlier episode of this podcast, I made a great deal about, oh, you know, Dante, he's looking for a kind of strong man with a righteous side, a kind of enlightened Christian strongman to lead the Italian peninsula. And I made this big plea of, oh, listen, this is Dante in his moment. We have to take the poem we're given. Remember this? And all this bit. And suddenly I come to this passage and I'm not taking the poem that I'm given. I want to point out my hypocrisy and say, I know. I think my divided mind here is interesting to look at, not because it's me, but I think it reflects some ways that we all bring baggage to a poem. I suppose in the end, I'm forgiving Dante his fascistic tendencies, at least I would define them as fascistic tendencies, because in the end, and this is my foolishness as well, I somehow don't think fascism is really on the table in my world. I know Hungary, the United States, I know, but I guess in my head, I think, you know, come on, fascism, it's not really on the table, but misogyny is. It's still on the table, and so this passage grates on me because I think it relates more closely to my day. I think that that's part of why I respond to this because it's close to What's going on here? Now, listen, in the end, here's the overall interpreter framework of the passage. We had the angels come down from Mary's bosom. So we had the virgin mentioned earlier in Canto 8. And now we have 
this Eve figure, a fallen woman. And we do have a Mary Eve Crocs. And just ahead of us lies the snake that we have already been told about. And the snake may have come from Eden. That virgin whore dynamic makes me very uncomfortable because I see it playing out in the very world around me in ways that I don't see a wish for a righteous strong man to take over politics in the world around me. And that may be my blind spot. That may be a way in which I'm bringing something from my world to the text. I'm reacting to it. And I'm also reacting to what I don't see in my world. The big fancy term for this is isogesis. Exegesis is interpreting out of a text. Isogesis is interpreting into a text, that I'm actually forcing myself, my views, my worldviews, my political stance onto a text. And I could well be guilty of that for excusing the earlier passage and not excusing this one. But let me say this. Despite my hypocrisy, I'm going to reiterate, I don't need comedy to be inerrant. Does Dante slip into misogyny here? Yes. Does that bother me? Yes. Does that invalidate comedy? No. And there's the rub. Comedy is still the quintessential work of Western art for me. I think there's a way that we have reached a point in our cultural landscape where an author's imperfections or here outright just disgusting bits cause works to be thrown out of the canon. Perhaps we should accept that works themselves are full of errors, that works of art are full of errors. I'm thinking here in my head as I'm saying this about the Faulkner class, the Faulkner PhD seminar I had with both Toni Morrison and Nellie McKay, the great writer Toni Morrison and the great African-American scholar Nellie McKay, they both loved Faulkner despite, and this is weird, despite the insane racism. They helped me in the class, but I mean, it was happening to me in my head. They helped me understand that the problem is when Faulkner is a, (laughs) when he's talking about race and he's a run-of-the-mill racist, that's not really problematic. When it becomes problematic is when Faulkner makes race the heart of the matter, when he makes it the thematic crux. So I could bring that back to Dante. Dante is bringing misogyny to the text, but misogyny is not the crux issue of the text. Women's fallen nature and the way they can't hold Fidelis to a man and that their love is inconstant is not the prime thematic of comedy. So that it floats around comedy, well, it does, as does Dante's fascistic tendency. These things float around comedy without being the absolute interpretive crux of the matter. And maybe that's how we get at it. It's hard and you can hear me dancing. (laughs) You probably hear me tap dancing as loudly and as fast as I can. But it is something to consider.
And it's something for you to walk away from this episode and think about. How is it that you account for, mm, I don't know, the disgusting nature of Picasso toward women? How is it that you account for Virginia Woolf's crazy anti-Semitism? How is it that you account for a work that you love a great deal, a writer, an actor, a film that you admire? How do you account for its flaws? Do you swallow them? Do you acknowledge them? Or do you say it's still a great work even with its flaws? And I guess that's where I come down. I acknowledge them. I want to point them out. And I want to say yet. And here's the big yet. Yet comedy is an exquisite work of art. One more time. The really tough passage in Purgatorio Canto 8, lines 64 through 84. Here we go. One of them turned to Virgil, Sordello, and the other, Judge Nino, turned toward someone seated above and said, Get up, Corrado. Come and see what God wills through his grace. Then that one, Judge Nino, turned to me and said, Because of the particular gratitude you owe the one who obscures his originary because in such a way that no one can afford it, when you are far away from these expansive waters, tell my Giovanna to call out prayers for me in a spot where the innocents have their prayers answered. I don't believe her mother loves me anymore because she stopped wearing the white bands on her head. But in her misery, she'll long for them again. Because of her, it's easy to understand how long love's fire can endure in a woman if the eyes and the sense of touch don't often rekindle it. The viper on the banner of the Milanese encampments won't make her tomb look as beautiful as the rooster of Galuro would have. As he settled this, his face was embossed with a look that showed the proper intensity that the fire of indignation can burn in a heart. Tough Passage involved a lot of dancing on my part. I hope that you appreciated that dancing. Seriously, I'm struggling with this passage even here in the exit talk at the end of the episode. I'm going to continue to struggle with it probably for years to come. It's going to bug me, be under my skin. I'm going to not really forget. I might forgive Dante, but I'm not going to forget, even though he's going to make (laughs) part of the absolute... Oh, with thematics of the journey be about a woman and a woman's love for a man, not a man's love for a woman. It's Beatrice's love for the pilgrim, not the pilgrim's love for Beatrice. That is the heart of the matter here. So uh, it's hard, but still nonetheless, we're going to press on to do that. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. (laughs) Please like my tap dancing. I'm doing it as fast as I can. I will see you back for the next bit on that oh most vaunted serpent making its way toward us as well as this curious figure Corrado who Nino has told to stand up and get over here I'm Mark Scarborough I'll see you on the walk ahead